Hello, and welcome to another episode of the R Foundation's podcast. My name is Joshua. I am your host. And today's episode will be focused on alternatives. So we are in the middle of season four, for those who are not up to date. Season four is looking at all of the past content that has been covered on this show, but from a perspective of stepping back, looking at it from a more broad and macro view, and seeing how all the different things connect and how various aspects of the systems of our society, the evolution of society, corruption, conspiracy, all these things, how these various aspects connect together and influence each other and lead towards uh, what we have today. So the last episode that I did was basically about the situation we're in today, politically, economically, culturally, our education system, and what that has resulted in. And so uh, at this point, starting from the beginning of season four into now, we have basically very clearly pointed out that things are not going well. And we now know what most of the reasons are for that, at least some of the, again, more macro overall reasons. And we see the trend, we see where that is going, and that is not a place that most of us want to be. And so the obvious question becomes, what are you going to do about it? And so that is where this episode comes into play. I'm going to bring in, I think, at least a lot of different aspects, everything from anarcho-capitalism to democratic confederalism to agorism to all kinds of things, homeschooling, blockchain, all kinds of alternatives, self-sufficiency, all kinds of things. And so the point of this episode is that, yes, the system is corrupt. The system is broken. And uh, what should we do? Well, we should build something better. And that is a much more effective and much more useful way of spending our time, our money, our resources, our wealth, because we basically just have a few options. We could, if we wanted to, try to change the system and say that it just needs some tweaks, it needs some reforms, we need to get the right people in office and change some policies and that kind of thing. That is one way. Another way would be to protest the system, stand up and do these massive protests and demonstrations and make our voices heard, even riot in the cities or or do very peaceful protests or do one and call them the other. But either way, you can protest and make your voice heard and get the idea out there. That That's another option. Another option, a third option, might be to actually fight the system. This would be where probably the militia movements might come into play or people that are deliberately getting into the black market, cartels, mafias, things of that nature. Uh, there are, and that's a questionable thing because cartels and mafias actually directly benefit from the brokenness of the system. So they don't necessarily want the system to go away. They just uh, are in competition with it. But uh, my point is just that you could actively try to fight the system in some way. And I would argue that while you could potentially get some good results out of each one of those options, you could see some sort of benefit that if you did them well, if they were successful in some way, then 
uh, society might be better off than it was beforehand. That is possible. I'm not saying that it will happen. I'm not saying that it wouldn't happen. I'm saying that that is possible. However, the final option that I would propose would be that instead of trying to reform the system or trying to protest the system or trying to fight the system, if instead of doing any of those things, whether it be from the left or the right or however you are approaching that situation, instead of doing that, what if we just go outside of the system? And if you think about it, that's going to be something that yields guaranteed, just about guaranteed results, especially compared to the others, that are often exponentially better for you and your family and your community than those other options. So in a, an example that I would like to use would be homeschooling or the the problem of the education system. Let's put it that way. So the education system has a lot of problems. Public schools are not the best for giving well-rounded education to children. They are indoctrination centers in many ways. And so if we want to change that, well, let's say I do. Let's say I want to change that because I have small kids. They're going to be going into school soon. And I want them to have a decent place to get an education. I don't want them indoctrinated with critical race theory or uh, any of these other things, maybe the transgender agenda, or maybe it's the woke, the church of woke agenda. There's lots of things that I don't really want my kids indoctrinated into. And so what I could do is I could spend my efforts joining the school board. And maybe also get on the board of some organization locally that's oriented around education and education policy. And in doing so, maybe I could pass some sort of legislation or a bill or change in the way the system runs at my local county level where we are not going to teach critical race theory or we are not going to push homosexuality and transgenderism or whatever it is that, say, I want to make sure my kid's not directly exposed to all the time and indoctrinated into. Uh, I could potentially do that. And let's say I did. Let's say I was completely successful and all of a sudden my kid is not going to be taught these things that I don't want them to be taught. Well, if you look at the difference in my child's education from that point on, it's going to be better. I, I think that's pretty clear. And at least according to my goals of not having them indoctrinated into these things, I will yield better results. Now, the other option for me is if instead of spending my time, my effort, my resources, my wealth into joining the school board and changing these policies, reforming the system, which arguably did do good, or that option could do good, that is a potentiality that could exist. What if instead of doing that, I just pulled my kids outside of school, whether it be sending them to a private school that does things the way that I think they should be done, or going all the way and homeschooling my kids or getting them involved in a homeschooling co-op or some sort of blend between the two? Well, what if I pulled them out of the system? And that's what I focused on. Well, if you look at the end result of the education of my children, so long as I made a good choice, let's say that both of these options, uh, we have two potential timelines here, and in both of them, I made good choices and I was very successful in both ways. Well, if I'm very successful getting a few policies changed at the school board level and at the county level, um, that's a relatively small, <laughs> I would argue, benefit to my kids' overall education, but a good one. It still is a benefit. Whereas if I make good choices and am successful pulling them out of the system, 
then they are getting an infinitely better education and experience as children because of how I decided to approach that situation, because I decided to operate outside of the system instead of dealing with the system or fighting the system. And so that is what I would try to promote. And that is my personal stance here. So food's another good example. If you uh, realize that there are literal poisons in a lot of the food that you would buy at the grocery store, and you don't think that's good, and you don't think that's good for your family and your children, well, what are you going to do about it? Let's say that you could run for office, some sort of local office, maybe even like the Senate level or governor or something that sounds very important. And in doing so, you ran on a platform of health. And let's uh, focus specifically on this food aspect. And you're very successful. This goes well, you get elected, and you get a lot of support from other legislators and other groups and people. And so you end up getting these bills passed where now it is illegal to sell food with XYZ ingredients in it in my state. And let's say I got that through, then arguably, that is an extremely good thing. And uh, actually, that, that would be pretty hard to argue against. That That is overall going to yield a positive result on my state, my community, my family, because the food that we are buying now does not have this XYZ list of poisons in them. So that's a good thing. And I would say that that is a good thing. I'm not going to argue that. However, the other option, the option that I am proposing, is that what if instead of spending all my time, effort, energy, resources into getting that political position and changing all these policies, even assuming that I could do that, what if instead of trying to do that, I put my efforts into getting my family real quality natural food and promoting that in my community? Well, number one, that's something I actually can do. Most of us are not going to win the governor's race if we go for it or the Senate or anything else. So, but even if, even if we could, even if we did, even if that was successful, compare that to what if instead I put my energy and my resources and my research into getting my family hooked up with a local raw milk dairy, buying fresh vegetables from the farmer's market from local people, growing a lot of our own food, maybe having some pigs and chickens in the backyard and eating meat that has not been consuming uh, GMO wheat and things with pesticides all over it and uh, fruit and vegetables from my garden that actually got picked when they were ripe instead of even the best organic stuff you can buy at Whole Foods. It still was picked weeks early. And so that fruit did not get all the nutrients from the plants that it should. It gets a rush of nutrients, especially at the end, right before it ripens up. You're not getting that. So that food, even if it's organic, even if it's overall, uh, quote, good, it is not nearly as good as something that I can grow in my backyard, let ripen on the vine and pick that's much more nutritious. And I can guarantee that it didn't get hit with any pesticides. It, there's no poison on it whatsoever. Whereas... I, I couldn't necessarily guarantee that, even at a Whole Foods or someplace like that. 
And so let's look at the net result. Well, if I'm doing this for my family, the net result is that uh, they are eating extremely healthy and nutritious food, and that is a guarantee. We are also more uh, self-reliant, self-sufficient, and I would argue those results are exponentially better than what I would have done just getting some of the poison taken out of the food at the grocery store. Now, you could argue on both of these accounts, the, the education example and the food example, that I would have been doing more good for the overall community had I gone the system route rather than seek the alternatives. However, what my argument would be would be that the majority of people are not very interested. They don't want to spend the time and effort, whether they will admit that or not, by their actions, they show that they don't want to spend the time and effort to learn what is true education, what is truly healthy, natural food. They don't care enough to spend the time and effort to do so. And in addition to that, even if they did, even if you told them, even if they learned, uh, it's not worth it to them to make the sacrifices they would have to make spend more money on that food, make three trips throughout the week, four trips throughout the week to pick up food from different sources rather than one Walmart trip. Most people just don't want to do that. I mean, homeschooling or even private school versus public school, uh, private school is much more expensive. Homeschooling is much more time intensive. And do people really want to do that? What if it's a two-income family and the let's say the mother quits her job and stays at home, raises the kids, and homeschools them? I would argue it's infinitely better for that child. However, that family is without a doubt going to have to make some sacrifices because that mom isn't working. They, they are down in income, and that's going to have to come from somewhere. They are going to have less money than they would have otherwise. So uh, that comes out of something. And that something would be a sacrifice of some kind. So most people are not interested or willing to make these changes. Now, I could force these changes where I force uh, some minor tweaks in the systems that they are participating in and in the things that they are buying to eat, the places they are sending their kids to go. But again, that's making incremental changes and benefits to their children of everyone in the community, which is a good thing. I am not arguing that that's not good. However, if I am pulling my kids out of school, homeschooling our kids, and then promoting that, maybe even starting a homeschooling co-op, talking to friends and family about homeschooling and the things they're doing, they see the difference in my children, and I can actually get multiple people on board with homeschooling that otherwise might not have been. And in doing so, they also get this exponentially greater reward for their children. That is a good benefit to others. It's not just about me. Same with food. If I am finding a way to source healthy, real, natural food, I'm talking about it, I'm telling people about it, I am actually doing it, I'm actually growing it, maybe I'm even selling it, maybe I am uh, starting a business where I am giving people access to these things. There's lots of different options and avenues for this where I can be a benefit to the overall community and to others, and a benefit that is much, much greater than these tiny incremental changes you'll make trying to reform the system. 
Now, even if you are successful making little tweaks to reform the system, the system is headed in a certain direction. And at this point in season four, you should be well aware of what that direction is. It is ultimate statism. It is technocracy. It is a direction that is not good for the common man. And so, even if I can slow that progression down a little bit or kind of push it a little to the left or a little to the right, it's still heading down the same road. And instead, what I argue is that we should just get off that road, create our own path. And that path might not be as easy as this big highway road down the middle, but it is still uh, arguably a much, much better path for me, my family, my community, those that care. And again, most people don't care enough to make these changes and sacrifices or to learn or to think about it or put anything into action. And that's okay. That's their choice. They have free will to make whatever choices they want with their lives and how they lead their families. And so while most people aren't going to choose these things, there's a handful of people that really want something better and something different. They really want to pursue the types of things that I'm talking about here. And if I create a way for them to be able to do so, I might only make an impact on a dozen families instead of 1,200 families. But that impact is so much greater. Those families are so much better off than that tiny incremental change that I made to the 1,200 families. So this is where the idea of agorism really comes into play. Agorism is a philosophy that was developed by Samuel Edward Konkin III back in, I believe it was the 70s, if I remember right. And you you would usually see his name written out as just S-E-K-3, and I would just refer to him as Konkin. But Konkin developed this idea of agorism, and the symbol for it is an A with a 3. It's A cubed. So what this stands for is agora anarchy, and action, three A's. And this is what the philosophy is all about. The agora in the old Greek cities was the central meeting place, the central marketplace. People would come there to buy things, to sell things. They would come there to learn and to teach. The philosophers would meet there, and that's where they had their schools. People would come to catch up on the latest gossip or see their neighbors, their friends, their family, All of these types of things would happen at the Agora, this center of town, this meeting place, this gathering place. And it was all voluntary. It wasn't like they had all these different rules they had to meet and it was open at a certain time. It wasn't anything like that. It was just this meeting place, this gathering place in the middle of town where people voluntarily exchanged goods, ideas, uh, met together as a community, grew together as a community. And that's the idea of agorism, where it is totally based on voluntary interaction. It is totally against any use of force and coercion. Since the government is force and coercion, the government has a monopoly on these things, roughly a monopoly, then agorism is separate from the government. It is separate from these governmental systems and these things that are highly regulated. So the idea is that the agora, agorism, operates in this gray market area or even black market area. However, 
Although the government is said to have a monopoly on the use of legitimate force, uh, legitimate is a key word there, there are other organizations and other groups and other people that will use force and coercion to get their way. You can think mafia and cartels, for example, criminals of different kinds. Now, if those groups and those people are using, uh, let's say they operate in what Konkin called the red market, any market where force and coercion are used and voluntarism is not respected, well, then that is outside of the Agorist philosophy period. So they're not going with the state, but they're also not going with any other use of force or, or coercion. And so instead, what this is all about is, again, voluntary interaction. This is things like if I were to have a dairy cow in my backyard. It is, at least in my state, perfectly legal for me to milk that cow and drink that milk. Raw milk is a legal thing for me to have, for me to drink. Same with anybody else. However, I am not legally allowed to sell that raw milk. That is illegal in my current jurisdiction. Now, there are multiple ways of dealing with this. Again, I can try to fight the system. I can try to reform the system, change that law. Um, I can find legal loopholes, and people do. Herd share agreements are a very common way of getting around this. But the other option is the agorist route, where I basically just say, screw the system. I'm not going to deal with any of that. And I'm just going to go ahead and sell it to my friends and family. You know, so be it. I'm just going to operate on this different level. It's totally voluntary. They want something. I want to give them something done. And that's it. And so this is uh, generally illegal, at least according to Konkin, the majority of agorism is illegal behavior. That was one of the definitions that he gave, said that it had to be illegal. And then there are other places where he hints that it doesn't necessarily have to be. But for example, it's things that like alcohol that are not necessarily illegal in and of themselves. Same with raw milk. Same with uh, processed meat that maybe I processed on my own farm. It's not illegal in and of itself to have these things or to consume these things, but it is illegal to sell these things or it is illegal to sell them without paying the state for a license to do so or a certification or getting the FDA to come in and inspect a facility or whatever all the hoops and bureaucracies that I would have to jump through would be in order to do this on a legal basis. Agorism is operating outside of that system. Now, I personally try to mostly advocate for the agorist philosophy that still falls within the legal framework of the systems we are under. So while I don't agree with those systems in any way, I would prefer for many reasons, both practical and moral and religious, I would prefer to not operate the majority of my life in an illegal manner. I don't think that is wise, and I think there are very many reasons for that that I am not going to expound on here. I've done so in other places. But at the same time, I agree that the system is immoral, it is corrupt, it is wrong, and I still want to participate in these other things. I still want to drink raw milk for myself and my family. I would still want to get quality meat that was raised by someone that I know or by myself, and so be it, processed on site and not at an official FDA-inspected facility. And I should be able to do that, and I want to be able to do that. So there are ways of doing those things without 
getting into the uh, legal issues that you normally would. And that is the route that I would personally recommend. So one example would be self-sufficiency, where if I am growing my own food, then I am necessarily not buying that food in the grocery store. So number one, I'm not dealing with the system and its regulations and laws and bureaucracies over the sale of food in the grocery store. Number two, I'm not giving my money to those corporations that are also just as corrupt and just as bad, or at least on the same track as the state is. I am also not spending the sales tax that goes to fund the state at the grocery store. Instead, I'm growing my own food. It's much better for myself, for my family. It's something where if something goes wrong, let's say there's some sort of shortages or a natural disaster or anything happens, I have food here that I am growing and I know how to do that. I've gained a skill and uh, it's just overall much better. So that would be a form of agorism, I would argue, that is not illegal. There's nothing wrong with me having a garden and growing my own food. I can catch rainwater and use that for various purposes. I can have solar panels on a building at my house and use that to get electricity. There are so many things that I can do. I can make my own products. I can make my own soap. I can make my own seasonings. I can uh, make all kinds of things. I can build my own things. I can saw my own lumber and use that to build a chicken coop or a treehouse or whatever else. I can do a lot of these things from this self-sufficiency perspective. And arguably, in my opinion, that is much, much better than trying to, again, fight the system, get involved with the system, or even deal in an illegal way to do the same thing. So uh, for example... It might be illegal for me to have uh, raw milk, so to say, for me to buy raw milk from somebody else. But it's not illegal for me to have a dairy cow and create that raw milk myself. So if those were my only two options, and it's not, but this is the example I'm using here, if those were my only two options, then personally, I would advocate for getting my own dairy cow. And I am therefore participating in the same approach, the same strategy. I'm participating in agorism, operating outside of the market and outside of the system, but I am doing so in a way that is actually perfectly legal. I'm doing it myself. And self-sufficiency is a very good tool for these types of things. Now, uh, this can then get expanded to so many different areas. I use the example of education. That's a really big one. So homeschooling is an approach that is actually much more common now than when I originally talked about it back in season one since COVID hit. People saw how horrible the schools were, and some people were just practically forced to homeschool, and then they realized that, hey, this actually isn't that bad. Now, some people got a bad taste in their mouth because their version of homeschooling was that the teacher would send home different assignments and worksheets and things like this, and the parent had to force their kid to sit down and do them, and this is not homeschooling. Or people were first forced to actually homeschool, but had no preparation. They didn't know what they were doing. They had no curriculums. They had no plans. They had no connections. They weren't involved in a local co-op or anything like this. And th no, that's not the way that you would do it if you were actually doing it uh, well, I would argue. And so although people were forced to do these things, 
Uh, I think some people had a bad experience for those types of reasons, whereas others had a great experience and others ended up being exposed to it and shifting to that. But homeschooling numbers are through the roof compared to what they had been the previous probably decade before COVID. And so um, that could be viewed as a very positive thing. And homeschooling is something, again, where at least in my jurisdiction, in my state, my country, it is perfectly legal to homeschool our children. So I am not necessarily operating in a criminal way or an illegal way, but I am operating outside of their systems. I am operating in a way where I don't support their systems. I am not exposing myself, my family, my kids to their corruptions and indoctrinations. And uh, that is something that I think should be the goal of all of us for ourselves and our family. That is the idea of agorism, operating outside of the system. Now, there are other examples of communities and people that have done this in various ways. One that most people would recognize would be the Amish or the Mennonites, where they have their own communities, they do their own stuff, they very rarely operate with any of these systems, they often don't pay taxes, and uh, they just do their own thing. Now, that is a very attractive model, and it works very well for them for the most part. However, I guess personally, my view on that would be that you are then secluding yourself from the rest of society. It is similar, although different fundamentally, as uh, taking a completely self-sufficiency approach. So with that, if I want to be completely self-sufficient, me and my family, then I'm going to have to go live somewhere way outside of town. I'm going to have to be off the grid, generate my own electricity, my own food, my own everything. And in doing so, yes, I might be much, or I would be much, much more self-sufficient and self-reliant. I would be much more outside of the system than I was before. However, that only helps me and my family, and it only helps me and my family in some very specific ways. It might actually be harmful to myself and my family in many ways as well, where we would be very isolated. We would be missing out on lots of things. Maybe there are aspects of medical care that we would miss out on that could be detrimental to uh, an individual in my family. There are many, many negatives to that approach, and I would argue the same to even a communal approach to uh, operating this method of agorism. And the Amish would be a good example of this, where uh, at least my personal opinion would be that it is much better to still be around other people, even other people that do not believe and think the way that you believe and think, even people that have made their free will decisions to operate with the systems or to fight the systems or to reform the systems or to just completely support the systems. Uh, those people uh, need to be reached out to as well. They also need help. They also uh, can benefit at times from being exposed to a different way of doing things, to things like agorism and other philosophies of freedom and liberty. And so if we remove ourselves from this, then we are basically abandoning society to its fate, which I would argue we know what its fate's going to be. We know the trend. We know where it's headed. And that's not a great place overall. That's kind of always the way it has been. However, again, there are some people, there are some families that don't want that. They are waking up. 
Some of them are waking up because of people like us that are helping them, and some are just seeing it for themselves. Some are being exposed to a lot of the lies and propaganda, and they're figuring out that, hey, this isn't what I thought it was. And they want another option. They want an alternative. They want something better. Well, if we're there, we can help lead them to that. We can help build that. And that is my personal argument. Now, if, let's say, um, we were extremely successful at doing this, and everyone that was oriented this way went ahead and acted in this way. And one of the points that Konkin makes is that you essentially starve out the state. If all of your activity becomes gray market and black market activity, where the state isn't getting any taxes from that, then they don't have the funds to fund their wars and fund their experiments and fund their politicians and everything else that they're doing. And same with a lot of the mega corporations. They don't have the funds to operate in the very corrupt way that most of them operate. And so in doing so, you are starving out these systems that are immoral and corrupt and that we do not believe in or agree with. And uh, you could argue that that's not actually true because the government could just print their own money or do various things in order to make up for that. But at least to some extent, let's pretend like it's true. If we were to do that, that would lead to anarchy. And that would be horrible, right? At least that's what you hear. That's what you see. That's what The Walking Dead portrays when you watch any kind of apocalyptic movie or TV show that's all over the place. It's been a a mainstay in modern media for a decade or more. The zombie movies have been extremely popular. The post-apocalyptic movies, the dystopian movies, extremely popular. And what do they all show? uh, I shouldn't say all. What do most of them show as the example of anarchy? Well, it's chaos. That's what we're told is anarchy is chaos. Well, uh, I will quickly make an argument against that. And to do so, let's just start with the definition of anarchy. It just means no ruler. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's chaos. It doesn't mean that people are violent. It doesn't mean robbing and looting and whatnot. It just means that there is no ruler. It could mean that there is no government. Well, we actually have seen this multiple times in history. And I would uh, refer you back to one of the episodes in season one, and I apologize, I don't have the exact episode in front of me, but I will link it in the show notes. I did an episode about ancient Israel that was more about governance than government, because ancient Israel, under Mosaic law, did not have a formal government. They didn't have a formal king or ruler. They didn't have a police force. They didn't even have a military. They were broken up into tribal militias. And even when justice was carried out, it wasn't through this centralized governmental court system. The justice was to be carried out by the victim or the representative of the victim. And then there was a system in place where if someone was wrongly accused or they believed that they were uh, going to be the victim of some revenge killing or something like this, there was a place that they could go, the cities of refuge. There was, in a sense, a decentralized court system that they could appeal to and have their case heard. And they had all this, all these systems set up to where there was governance, there was law and order, there were systems in place to accomplish the things that uh, government is supposed to do, but they were able to do it without an actual government. And uh, you could argue the pro and con of this, because if you look at the biblical account, Israel, uh, before this, 
had the time of the judges. And this was a time when there was no ruler. This was a time of anarchy where people, quote, did what was right in their own eyes. And guess what? That didn't go very well. They had a lot of turmoil, a lot of strife. There was fighting. There was corruption. There was violence. There was lots of very bad things that occurred in that time period. However, if you look post uh, the early Israelite people group, and that would be post the original Mosaic law, when they asked for a king. They specifically asked for a king in the book of Samuel in the Bible, and God told them that uh, this is not going to go well for you. This is going to be a curse for you. This is actually a rejection of myself, is what God says, that having a king, creating this formal centralized government with a human ruler ruling over you other humans, that is against me. That is a rejection of me. That is doing the opposite of what I have told you to do. I have told you that I am the ruler and that you guys obey me and love one another. That is what you are to do. And there should be true justice. Whereas if a human or a group of humans is ruling over other humans, that does not lead to true justice. And that is putting people in the place of God. And guess what? They did it anyway. And guess what? It didn't go well. So just like the time of anarchy, the time of the Israelite kings went arguably worse than the time of the judges. And there are only two-ish examples of decent kings. Josiah would be the only one that actually did well. You could argue David is often argued, but although he is promoted a lot in the Bible, uh, his reign was not a very pleasant one for a lot of people. He murdered people and did all kinds of horrible things. And so uh, the argument here is that, yes, it is possible to have a society that has governance and order without having a government. Israel is one example. The only other example that I'll specifically mention would be Rojava, and that was an area in, if I remember right, it was Turkey, Syria, and maybe Pakistan. It was kind of on the border of these three countries, definitely Syria and Turkey, though, and they declared an autonomous zone. They declared this large region to be totally autonomous from those states and governments. And they didn't have their own government, at least at first. They ended up creating a government of sorts in order to deal with things like um, arbitration with other states, where there actually had representatives that could speak for their region, because that's an issue if you don't have any officials to speak for your region. And arguably, there are other ways of handling that. But they did create um, a small version of government in order to deal with that. But overall, this was a territory that had no government, and especially at first. And instead, they followed a political philosophy called democratic confederalism. And what this did was basically bring things down to a as local of a level as possible. So they would have people that would meet up on a street level, a neighborhood level, and they'd have these neighborhood meetings that would occur. And anything that only affected that neighborhood would get decided there. That neighborhood would figure it out among themselves. And anything that was larger would get handled by another meeting of people that would meet up. And it would be over, let's say, an entire uh, few blocks where there was you know, a larger territory and things that affected on that scale, they were decided at those meetings. And then there'd be a citywide meeting and there would be you know, the equivalent of a countywide meeting and a regional meeting. And then they were split up into overall, there were three 
uh, sectors, I forget what they call them, but three jurisdictions, very large jurisdictions, uh, the size of some states and countries. And these three also had meetings where they could meet together on things that involved things on that level. And so things are decided from a bottom-up way. Uh, one of the things that was mentioned by some people that actually were there and lived there was that uh, this is not a system for everyone. You have to keep in mind that uh, Israel, as well as this example in Rojava, uh, these are people that are from an Eastern culture. That is a very different culture than the individualistic Western culture. The Eastern culture is much more collectivist, so to say. And so uh, there are issues there. There are also the issues of, well, if you have all these meetings, then you have to actually go to these meetings for it to be effective and to do anything. And a lot of people in the Western world nowadays would have no desire to go to all these different meetings and have their voices heard and actually figure stuff out and decide it on a local level, whereas they actually were able to do so. And they had that participation and it was effective. Now, the issue was that uh, this was a territory that, despite being made up of many ethnicities, there was a large Kurdish presence, but also there were some Turks there and Syrians and Arabs and all different kinds of religions, all different ethnicities. There was uh, equal rights between men and women. And keep in mind, this is the middle of Turkey and Syria, some of uh, kind of the worst area for uh, human rights and especially women's rights. And uh, they had all of these positive things. They had this uh, very democratic system that was set up. And yet, even so, America, under Donald Trump at the time, basically got them involved in peace talks with Turkey. Uh, the, the Rojava area dropped some of their defenses. And then the U.S. totally backed out on them, left them stranded high and dry, and let our NATO allies Turkey come in and take over the area. Now, I have actually not figured out what happened after that. I know they figured out something. I think they made a peace deal with Syria, where I think they're back in with Syria now under their government, but with some levels of autonomy. I don't know all the details. You can look it up yourself if you want. But I, I did do an episode about these sometime in season one. I'll try to find it and link it. But Yes, this was something that did work in modern times. I think it went on for a decade or more. And this was, again, under Donald Trump when it possibly ended. And again, I don't have the details on that, so I can't really speak to that. But uh, that's an, just another example. Another one would be if you uh, take libertarianism to its ultimate conclusion, and you go all the way to anarcho-capitalism. Now, this would be kind of obviously the opposite of a more collectivist communist approach. Communism, you could argue, could be done in a decentralized way without a state, but uh, that's not something I am going to touch on. Instead, I will touch on anarcho-capitalism. I think that is much more applicable to the Western world. And what anarcho-capitalism would say would be that instead of a state, everything should be based on free markets, where you do have things that need to be done in a society. Governance and order are important things. The police do form a function. They perform a function that is necessary for a society. However, I think most of us would agree that there are a lot of corruptions involved in the current policing system, as well as the governmental system, as well as the banking system, and every other system. Well, if all of these were broken up, 
where they weren't under one monopoly of the state. They were broken up into individual sectors. And then each sector had multiple companies, corporations of sorts, that were performing these services. Then everything would be based on voluntary free market adoption. And market forces would arguably incentivize the better providers to uh, be successful and the providers that were not as good to not be as successful. So for example, you would have some private policing firms in your area that might service, heck, one might only service your neighborhood, whereas one might service your city, one might service your state if there is such a thing or that regional area. And you can pick. So there might be one that just does patrols and will come if you call them. There might be one that actually offers protection where they install cameras and um, they're watching you to some degree. You have someone assigned to you. There might be some that are only kind of more catastrophic, where if something horrible happens and a crime is committed against you, then they will investigate it for you. And there'd be various ways that you could pay. Maybe you could pay cash. Maybe you could do a subscription service, kind of more like taxes, where you pay a certain amount each month or whatever. I don't know what they would be. Maybe a neighborhood association would pay for one for their neighborhood. And then if you're a part of that neighborhood, you pay your um, your fees to your neighborhood, and that goes to paying whatever defense agency is that handles your neighborhood. There are so many different ways this could play out. But no matter how it plays out, these defense agencies, for this example, are incentivized to actually provide you with services that are effective and efficient and cost-effective. Because if they don't, they're going to lose your service and you're going to go to one of their competitors. Whereas if they do, if they can truly show that they are preventing crimes, they are able to get justice after crimes have been committed, they are not charging an arm and a leg, so they're competitive cost-wise, then they will get more customers. And again, this is a market-based society, capitalist in the positive way. Capitalism is not always positive. And so uh, they would be able to be more successful by meeting the demand in their market in a positive way. And so imagine this for everything, for banking, for policing, for uh, governance, for schooling, for all of these different forms of governance of the society. And that is something that is possible. Now, currently, that is a philosophy that is not one I that I know of that I can point to a specific example and say, oh, it was done here and it worked really well. But theoretically, it would. There would still be issues. And that is very clear for many reasons. However, those issues would likely be a lot less than the issues we have today under the monopoly of the state. And so that is another alternative philosophy that could potentially work. And there are lots of these. So if you ever run into this issue of, well, what would happen if we didn't have the state? Or what if everybody uh, was an agorist and operated outside the state? Well, then the state might disappear. Then what would happen? We'd have chaos. We'd have anarchy. Well, anarchy is not always chaos. And here are some philosophies and specific examples of how that could happen without society totally collapsing. We could even have a better society if it were a stateless society. And that is possible. However, what I personally stick to is the world we currently live in today. That is a world with states, with governments, and with these corrupt and horrible systems and immoral systems that we live under. And so what I focus on is what do we do in this system that we are in, in this world that we are in? How do we operate in a way that is actually moral, that is actually effective, that does actually promote the things we want to 
promote. Well, I don't want to promote bombing innocent civilians on the other side of the world. However, if I pay my taxes, that's exactly what I am doing. I am supporting that in some way. Now, it's a roundabout way. I would argue it's not directly immoral for me to pay taxes for that reason specifically. However, it is something that I don't want to do. So I don't want to give money to the state because I don't believe in the state. I think it's immoral and corrupt and I don't want to fund it. And the same is true for Walmart. The same is true for many other corporations. I, I don't support them. I think that they do horrible and evil things and corrupt things. And uh, I think that has been proven time and time again in many different examples that, again, are not worth getting into in this episode. But I don't want to support them. However, if I'm not going to support them, I have to have something else to do. And that is the takeaway for this episode as a whole, is that there are alternatives to all of these things, whether it be on the macro level of the entire society or the micro level of what are you going to feed yourself and your family? And what I encourage people to do is find those alternative, find what is healthy, find what is good, find what is educational, find what is best for you, your family, your community, and actually do it, pursue it, put your money there, put some time and effort and resources into it. And that is going to give you an exponentially better return than if you are to get caught up in this rabbit hole of fighting the system or trying to reform the system or opposing the system or whatever you're doing with the system. Uh, Don't fall into that trap. Don't even fall into the trap of just going down all the conspiracy rabbit holes and, oh, well, this corruption exists and this person's corrupt and this company's doing X, Y, Z. Yes, and that's super interesting and it can be good to know. Learn those things. That's not bad, but put it into action. It's just like learning about health. You can learn all there is to know about nutrition and health, but if you don't actually put it into action then it's not really going to do you any good. Now, I'd like to kind of wrap up this episode today with an example of something that I am actually doing myself with some others related to agorism and creating alternatives to the system and actually building out these alternative systems. And so what is being done is we are currently in the process of setting up a business. This business is tentatively called the Agora. And uh, fittingly, as you might guess. So what the Agora is, is a hub for alternative systems. That is its purpose and its point. These are systems that are focused on self-sufficiency and sovereignty and voluntarism with a specific focus on food, health, education, and resources. Now, the bulk of what we'll start off as, what the core will be, will be focused on food. So this has a physical location. There will be a building, a storefront. There will be uh, about two acres of property that at least an acre of that will be market gardens and food forests and a small orchard, a small berry patch, a big greenhouse. It'll have lots of stuff producing lots of food. And what we're going to do is have a market, like a farmer's market of sorts, inside of the storefront. This will be one that'll be open multiple days a week, not like a one day a week on Saturday's market, but one that's actually open where people can visit it at different times. And we'll sell all the general farmer's market type things. We'll have vendors that are actually selling them, but it's uh, more a style where the vendors can come, drop off their stuff, have a little booth already set up or a set of shelves. They can have their stuff there and we will handle dealing with the customers and ringing it up. And then they pay a fee or a percentage of profits or something of that nature. And that's how we will uh, basically stock our shelves. The 
everything in the store and everything that we deal with is all going to be focused on being as local as possible, as natural as possible, organic or better. And that is our focus. Now, there are lots of things that we can legally sell this way. A lot of canned foods and jams and vegetables and fruits, uh, soap, all kinds of things like this, we can sell totally legally uh, in this format. However, there are many things that we cannot legally sell. These are things like meat that hasn't gone through the proper inspections and have all the certifications and licenses. Uh, alcohol is another really big one that we cannot legally directly sell. We've got issues with raw milk, where that is also illegal to deal with in that manner. And so because there are so many different things, so many different licenses and registrations, certifications, all this stuff, and we don't really want to deal with any of that, we are going to structure our business as a private membership association. This is a PMA. The idea here is that we are bringing all interaction into the private sphere, which is not the sphere of public regulation. Now, it doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. According to the Constitution and multiple Supreme Court cases, we cannot do something that I think uh, is considered a substantial evil, I believe is the term that they used, which has been defined in multiple cases. So we have case law to back up that that basically means uh, death or potential death or torture or things of that nature. And as long as those things aren't happening, those substantial evils aren't happening, then the government cannot interfere with a private contract between two private individuals. And this, like I said, goes back to case law, Supreme Court, uh, cases that have been heard, as well as the Constitution itself, a very solid foundation here. And so the issue is um, that anyone that does, does business with us has to be a member. And that's what keeps this a private organization, because it's only members. We don't deal with the public. You can think of it in this way. What if I had you over to my house for dinner? Uh, can I serve you alcohol? Well, yes, that's perfectly legal. What if you really like this beer that I give you? And I say, oh, well, I've got six more of them in the fridge. I'll just sell you those. Give me 10 bucks and I'll give you the six pack. Yes, that's actually legal. What if I sell you food? What if I sell you pork? And uh, let's say I'm serving pork, we're doing barbecue, and it's from a pig that I raised and I slaughtered myself. I didn't take it to an official facility. I can still serve that to you. You can still eat it. And then if you like it, I can still sell it to you. I can sell you 10 pounds of that pork. That is perfectly fine and legal. There are plenty of things that I can do in my house. I can serve you food. I can serve you alcohol. My kitchen doesn't have to be inspected. I don't have to have some sort of liquor license and all these kinds of things. My house doesn't have to be zoned for commercial use. I don't need to do any of these things because it's private. This is the private sphere. And in the private sphere, we have a lot more free reign than we do in the public sphere. If I was operating a store dealing with the public, I couldn't do any of this stuff. And so the idea of a PMA is to take that relationship, like having you over to my house, and expand that to a business level. And so uh, that is what we are doing with our business, the Agora. So it will be a PMA, and that gives us protections for anything and everything that we do under it. Now, because I am not going to rely on the Constitution or the Supreme Court or the government officials to follow their own laws, even though this does offer us all the protections we need, technically and legally, uh, I'm not going to count on that because uh, they don't always follow their own laws and they might harass us anyway, even if we went in court eventually. And so uh, we're going to layer multiple protections onto this. So for example, in addition to this market, we're also going to have a food buying club or a food co-op of sorts. 
And the way this is going to work is that people that want to deal with an expanded market and more options, such as meat, raw milk and raw milk products, uh, kombucha, things of this nature, then they are going to have to be a part of this buying club. And in order to do so, basically all you need to do is sign up for it and you pay in advance. It's a very big deal here. So let's say that you're going to, you expect to spend $200 worth of grocery money at our store at the Agora next week. So you send $200 to us, you pay us $200, we put it in basically an escrow account of sorts. And then what we will do is we will spend the next few days going around and getting all the things we need to get for our uh, buying club. And we are going to spend the money that we were given by our buying club to get these things. And then we're going to bring them back. We're going to package them up. We're going to do whatever we need to do. And then we're going to distribute them to our members. And they're going to receive their things. And in exchange for all these services, we're going to charge a fee. And that's how we make money. So if you pay close attention, kind of from a more legal perspective of how this is operating, we are actually not selling anything to our buying club members. Instead, we are operating as a third party, and we are uh, operating the financial and administrative services. And that is the main thing that we are doing. So the food buying club, they are the ones that are buying food. They are the ones that have the money. They're pooling their money together, and they are buying food with it, and that food is getting distributed to them. Now, we as the Agora are providing a service for them where we are collecting their funds, we're bringing them together in an account, we're buying the foods from different places in bulk, we're picking them up for them, we're repackaging them if needed, and we're distributing them out. In exchange for all these services, we charge a fee. But we are not selling the products. It's kind of like Grubhub or a food delivery service where if I order, let's say, uh, McDonald's from some online app and some company, some food service company is going to go out, get that McDonald's for me and drop it off at my house. Well, I am going to give my money to, let's say, Grubhub for this example. Grubhub is going to take my money to McDonald's, buy my food for me, and then bring it back to me and give me my food. And they are going to charge a fee for that service that they provide. Now, did Grubhub buy the food from McDonald's, mark it up and sell it to me? No, that's not what's happening. They are providing a service and that is how they are operating. So if you think about it like this, then if we are providing raw milk and raw milk products and meat that's been custom slaughtered and things of this nature that you are not allowed to sell to the public. Well, number one, we're not selling to the public. So that already has us covered. But number two, we're not selling at all. We are just providing a service and these people, these individuals are grouping together and as a group, they are getting the things that they need and we're just helping them do so. So that's how we'll be structured. So uh, again, the core of our business starting off will be a market and a food co-op with a lot of things that we're growing in the back. The goal for what we're growing on property is not to sell raw produce, raw fruit, raw vegetables. Those are fairly low profit margins and uh, not only do we want to do this for moral reasons and philosophical reasons. We also want to make money. We want to be sustainable. We want to actually be able to have this as an operating business model that other people can hopefully copy and model and get going themselves. And so what we're going to do is try to focus on things that are unique and higher profit margins, but also that we can use to make value-add products with because that's where the profit margins are. So for example, if we have bees and let's say we have elderberry bushes, we can make elderberry syrup, 
basically from things we just grow on the property. The same could be true of if we're making kombucha and we're flavoring it. Well, we can grow the berries to flavor the kombucha. And uh, we can do that pretty easily. We might even be able to grow the tea that we brew the kombucha in. And so the point is that we are growing things to support these value-add products to actually make the profits. In addition to this, we have a great setup where we can host classes and do workshops. We can do tours of our whole setup and explain it to people. And people can pay to take a tour and take them all around, do like an hour tour or whatever. Uh, We can also offer consulting services. So let's say someone wants to set up uh, chickens in their backyard, or maybe they want a small food forest, or maybe they want to be more self-sufficient in general and want a consultation on what they can do to reach this goal. Well, then we will provide consultation services for those types of things. We'll do the classes. We'll do the workshops. And in addition to that, we will also be using the property and the things we grow to propagate. Some of these things propagate naturally, like raspberries, blackberries. They just send up shoots every year like crazy. You dig those up, you pot them, and you can sell, ideally spring and fall probably. It'll probably be a seasonal kind of small nursery thing, but we'll sell the things that we grow. And so hopefully we can propagate the fruit trees, the berry bushes, herbs, all kinds of things. And people can actually buy plants that have not been sprayed with anything. They're not GMO products. They are things that we grew right there. They're supporting a local distribution center, and we can provide them with plants that are actually going to yield them some sort of product and profit. And so it's good for them. So if you want to buy some strawberries, if you want to buy some mint, if you want to buy, you know, bee balm or who knows what you want, uh, hopefully we'll be able to provide a lot of that for you. So we'll have a small nursery there. And then the final aspect that I think we'll start off with at launch will be a crypto consulting arm. And so with the crypto consulting, it'll be something where someone is interested in cryptocurrency and wants to get involved, then we can do various levels of helping them get onboarded into the process all the way up to potentially portfolio management still working on the details on that. Because just like alcohol and food, there are so many regulations in the world of finance. And again, we will be operating under a PMA structure, which does protect us from those things. We're only dealing with the private realm. And in that realm, legally, we should be able to do all this. However, we want to stack protections, and there'll probably be some sort of stacking going on there. And uh, we'll see how that ends up. But as you can tell, uh, this then becomes a business that is a hub for all of these alternative systems. It's all local, it's all natural, and people can come and get their things there. And instead of having to go to a drop-off location for a raw milk dairy, and then go into the farmer's market to get some veggies, and then growing some more in their backyard to supplement, and then going to the orchard every year to pick apples, and then going to this place and that place and buying in bulk and going through Azure Standard and still going to the grocery store for the things you can't get all these other places, instead of making these three, four trips, whatever a week to get all these healthy, real, natural, local foods that our customers want, we're going to provide one place where they can get them. And we're going to be able to offer that in a legal way and a very cost-effective way. So uh, this is our plan. We are currently uh, in the process of getting this set up. So it's not off the ground yet. Don't even have a website. But I I just want to leave you with that example of, hey, here is a thing that is being done, kind of like the idea of ancient Israel or the more modern Rojava. Uh, Some of these things have actually been tested and have actually worked. 
And so yeah, it's something where you can't just look at this and say, oh, that's just a philosophy in real life. That's not how it would go. Well, no. In real life, there are examples of these things, and uh, they have at times been very successful. And so hopefully that gives you some inspiration and some ideas. I am going to end this episode here because I'm reaching the time frame that I try to stick with, roughly an hour per episode. And I will leave you till next time. Now, until then, I will say that anybody that wants to financially support the podcast, that is extremely appreciated. Thank you to all the supporters out there on Patreon and Subscribestar. We have a few on each. And I really appreciate that. If you are a subscriber, you get some perks. Uh, Most people, I think, do it just to support the show because they believe in it. But if you also want the perks, then I strongly encourage you to take advantage of them. One of them is I'm currently writing a book. I've been writing a book for a while now. And I'm releasing sections of that book as time goes on. And I released another section a few days ago. So if you are a supporter on Patreon or Subscribestar, then be on the lookout for that. That is posted on there that you can see. Um, for anybody else, there are so many different ways to support. You don't have to just support monetarily. You can also leave a rating and ideally a review. You can spread the word. I got an email from somebody. Sorry, I forget who what your name was. But um, someone that did say that they were really enjoying the podcast. I think picked it up in this season, season four. Had shared it with a friend. They're really enjoying it. So just telling other people about it is also something that gives a lot of support to the podcast. But it also helps other people. Again, spreading these ideas is a very important thing. Our, our society is uh, very corrupt and immoral and going down the hole. And so if you can do some things to help with that issue, then uh, go for it. And that is a good thing to do. And hopefully sharing ideas like this and talking about these things with other people, uh, that is something that anyone can do. So thank you for those of you that are doing that. I am really not sure what I'm going to be touching on next week, so I will leave it as a mystery. I think I've covered roughly all the stuff that I talked about in season one of the podcast. We'll probably jump into season two type content. But again, from this overall macro perspective, tying everything together, and that's likely what we'll get into. If not, it'll be the leftovers from season one. I'm really not sure. So I'll figure that out before next time, obviously, and you will be surprised and hopefully enjoy your surprise. So until next time, I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.